Our New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Then some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying to us, A little while, and you will no longer see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? And because I am going to the Father, they said, What does he mean by this, a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she, is, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. This morning, you are our rock, you are our redeemer, and we need your grace and your help this morning. So meet us as we sit with your scriptures and use this time to build us up, to help us grow more into the likeness of Jesus, uh, to know you more deeply, to desire what you desire more deeply, and to become better servants in your world as agents of reconciliation and peacemaking in your world. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Paul Brand was an orthopedic surgeon who worked for in the middle and late parts of the 20th century. He was a pioneer in the treatment of leprosy, and especially this sort of tendon transfer technique uh, in the hands of those who suffered from leprosy, and he spent the first part of his career in India, the latter part of his career in the United States, and he observed that 
in the United States, this is what he writes. He said, I observed in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at, greater, at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, pastor, author, public theologian Tim Keller reflects on Dr. Brand's observations and reflects on why that might be the case. This is what Keller says. He says, the short response is that other cultures have provided its members with various answers to the question, what is the purpose of human life? Some cultures have said it is, good, it is to live a good life and so eventually escape the cycle of karma and reincarnation and be liberated into eternal bliss. Some have said it is enlightenment, the recognition of the oneness of all things and the attainment of tranquility. Others have said it is to live a life of virtue, of nobility and honor. There are those who teach that the ultimate purpose in life is to go to heaven, to be with your loved ones and with God forever. The crucial commonality is this. In every one of those worldviews, suffering can, despite its painfulness, be an important means of actually achieving your purpose in life. It can play a pivotal role in propelling you toward all the most important goals. One could say that in each of these other cultures' grand narratives, what human life is all about, Suffering can be an important chapter or part of that story. Keller continues, he says, but modern Western culture is different. In the secular view, this material world is all that there is. And so the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy. However, in that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It is a complete interruption of your life story. It cannot be a meaningful part of the story. In this approach to life, suffering should be avoided at almost any cost or minimized to the greatest possible degree. This means that when facing unavoidable and irreducible suffering, secular people must smuggle in resources from other views of life, having recourse to ideas of karma or Buddhism or Greek Stoicism, or Christianity, even though their beliefs about the nature of the universe do not line up with those resources. And this great weakness of modern secularism in comparison to other religions and cultures is what Keller will spend the rest of his book exploring. Blessed are those who suffer. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're using this Lenten resource from Kate Bowler at Duke Divinity School and her team, uh, which I'm so thankful for. We're following the themes that they give us each week along with the texts that, um, that they have picked out. And so here we are reflecting on this passage from Romans chapter five and this idea, blessed are those who suffer. Now that's not to say that suffering is in itself a blessing per se. It's not to say that suffering is good or that the, the things of this world that are tragic and evil and horrific are not to be lamented and grieved. Of course they are. We see Jesus himself as one who laments and grieves and even pleads with God to take away this cup from him. 
Yet, what we do see in the story of Christ and in the scriptures is that suffering is not a sign of God's lack of blessing. Suffering is not something that happens to those whom God has forgotten or abandoned, but rather suffering. This inevitable and universal aspect of our human experience is something that God himself chooses to enter into as deeply as possible in the person of Jesus. To join us in it. To walk the path of human suffering. To be misunderstood. To be mocked to be cast out, to be wounded and pierced, to be apprehended, wrongly convicted, and ultimately executed in an unjust system. Jesus himself, God in person in our world, walked that road. He was and is the blessed one, the blessed human, the Messiah of God. And yet his path was a path that went the way of the cross. When we think about what our blessed life looks like, or if you were just to kind of, you know, click on hashtag blessed and see what kinds of pictures emerge, you don't get pictures of the cross, right? You get pictures of family reunions and lots of smiles, maybe the, the beach photo with all the matching shorts and t-shirts or whatever. You get, you, know, you get the incredible meal that's ultimately Instagrammable and shareable. You get pictures of life as it ought to be or pictures of joy or consolation or goodness and we tag them with blessed or so blessed and this is what we imagine as the good life and those are good things, worthy of joy and praise and sharing. But the point for us this morning to consider is that that is not the one and only picture of the blessed life. And suffering is not evidence to the contrary of God's faithfulness or God's love or God being with you. But in your experience of suffering, in our experience of suffering, God is with us. You are blessed. In our suffering, God blesses us. In our suffering, we can have confidence in God's love and faithfulness and power. In our suffering, we come to know more deeply this God who willingly enters into our plight with us and for us in Jesus. So here, if we want to turn our attention to Romans 5, you've got that on page 8 there in your bulletin. We just heard Abigail read that for us. The Apostle Paul is, at this point in the letter, this is a, this is a big old letter, right? It's, it's full, of, full of complicated language and a lot of complex thought. And here, by the time you get to the fifth chapter, this is five out of 16. So you're, you know, you're, you're about a third of the way through the book at this point. What Paul has been doing thus far is making his case for the goodness and the faithfulness of God. He's talking about how God can be trusted and that the, what God has done in Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness, God's victory over evil. And here, as we kind of enter the flow midstream, Paul writes, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord 
Jesus Christ. And what he's meaning they're justified by faith, what he's meaning is therefore we are right with God through faith, or this faithfulness of Christ is what Paul is talking about there, that it's not through the family that we're born into, it's not through achievements on our end, it's not through our performance or through our religious heritage or identity, but rather it is through Jesus that we become right with God. It is through Jesus that God has made peace with us and in whom we have access, he says in verse two, to this grace in which we stand and we boast in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. And when Paul says boast, he's not talking about bragging, like we're the good ones, we've got it, but he's talking about confidence, strength, and this hope of a future where the story that God is telling about the world is a story that is moving forward toward a day when all that is wrong will be set right, where every tear will be wiped away, every pain will be soothed, every grief, every tear wiped up and brought into the love and healing and restoration of God, every broken relationship restored, even the earth will be made fruitful in that day. That's the hope and the glory of the future of God's promise. And what Paul is saying is in Jesus, what we see is God has attached our lives right now to that future. We stand in a hope now that that is our destiny. But he doesn't stop with that. He says in verse three, and not only that, we also boast in our sufferings. Boast in our sufferings. Again, boasting, not being like a brag, but it's confidence. Confidence in our suffering, knowing that it's not utterly meaningless. Knowing that it's not something that flies in the face of God's promise, but it's something that God has taken up into this great work of his spirit. And he's moving us through suffering and beyond it to that great hope of resurrection life on the other side. Now, if I were building this series, this probably isn't actually the passage I would have first thought to choose. If we're gonna talk about blessed are those who suffer, in my mind, I would have gone to one of these other passages, maybe one from Hebrews that talks about how we have a high priest in Jesus who's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Or one where, where Jesus in Hebrews chapter five, for example, learned through his own sufferings and that we have fellowship with him. Or I would have maybe gone to one of the other passages from Paul's letters where he talks about how when we suffer, we actually get to know Jesus more intimately because he, as the suffering servant, is the one with whom and in whom we experience the sufferings of this life. There's so many beautiful passages to go to that speak to how we, as people of faith, bear up under suffering. Or First Peter, one of my favorites, will talk about this, this living as exiles in the world and what it means to be born into this living hope and inheritance and to anchor our hope in Christ in this world. But here, the emphasis isn't specifically on comfort that we know in our sufferings. It's not specifically on the fellowship we have with Christ. Those are, the, those are the key emphases in other places. But here in Romans 5, the emphasis is on the usefulness of suffering in shaping us as people of character. 
It's another lens through which to look. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And the hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Suffering here in this passage is like the crucible in which we're formed in the likeness of Jesus. And if you've ever experienced an acute season of suffering, if you're in one now, you can tell your own story about how being in places of suffering and situations of suffering, they just expose the illusion that was there before, right? The illusion that we're not vulnerable, the illusion that we're in control, the illusion that we have what it takes to create the good life that's always trending up and to the right. When we suffer, we find ourselves in those situations where we come to the limits of our own ability, of our own durability, of our own endurance. We come to those places where we need to cry out, where we recognize that prayer is our only recourse, that faith in what is not now, but what is promised is something we actually need to draw deeply upon. And so it's in context of suffering that we realize what's always true, but often something that we're oblivious to is that we in and of ourselves are not enough. Just like we celebrated or remembered at Ash Wednesday, apart from God, we are ashes and dust. Apart from God, we are fires that have gone out, not just in need of one extra log to get it back up, but in need of a complete rekindling. This is what God does as he makes us alive together with Christ and attaches us to that great promise of a future that we could never possibly build with our own hands or ideas or aspirations. But this world that God, by his almighty creator power, is making through a movement of death and resurrection. Our hope in Christ is a cross-shaped hope. It's a hope not of avoiding suffering or escaping it, but of going through it and beyond it to the life God promises, because this is the path of Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, and it is the path that we travel with him. Our hope is a cross-shaped hope, which is one we only can know and really come to know as those who suffer. Blessed are those who suffer. Again, this is not to say those words of cold comfort of, you know, everything happens for a reason or, oh, you know, there's, some, there's a lesson in this for you to learn. I think that's not the point. It's not that we are to minimize the pain or the wrongness or the evilness of the suffering that we do, in fact, encounter. Paul will even call death as the last enemy of God. It is something to be grieved and to be sure, something God grieves himself. Suffering is not the way it's supposed to be. Death, sickness, evil, injustice, broken relationship. This is not the way it is supposed to be. We're not to choose suffering for ourselves as though we're lacking or something when we don't have it. Rather, suffering is something we should expect as human beings living in a world that is broken, a world in which we are vulnerable. And the good news for us living as vulnerable human beings in a broken world is that God is with us. 
that suffering is not a sign of God's absence, but rather God is with us in the midst of it. Theologians and skeptics and philosophers have raised the question and wrestled with the question forever. How can a good and all-powerful God allow suffering to persist in the world? It's a, it's a conundrum that has perplexed every generation of thinker. And we can get stuck on that question. But what's so important as those who are following Jesus into the world and those whose idea of suffering and what it means and how we ascribe meaning to it, how we live into it or bear up under it, what's so important for us to remember is that what God has given us is not an esoteric explanation of why. There's mystery in how all of these things cohere. There's mystery in Gethsemane when Jesus prays, Father, may this cup pass, but not my will, but your will be done. What we're given in the story of Christ, what we're given in the scriptures and in the long tradition of the Christian church is not an explanation or at least an adequate one of how a good and all-powerful God can allow suffering to persist or even to allow our own sinfulness to persist. Why not just do a complete software upgrade on us, you know, download, reset, and version 2.0 of humanity? We just do it right. Why not? We're not given that why not in any explicit and clear way, but what we are given with absolute clarity is the picture of God in person in our world, Jesus, displayed upon the cross as a sufferer, as God who is not aloof and up there in the sky playing some video game with us where it's making stray bullets come our way and wondering what we'll do. But as the God who comes near, God who gets into the mix, God who puts himself beneath our suffering and our pain and allows the full weight of all of it, of our sinfulness, of all of the all of the damage that we've done and all of the damage we've endured, the pain, the brokenness, the wounds, all of it. He allows that to fall on him so that he can take it, so that he can be the one who deals with it, so that he can let it crush him and that he can be the one who rises from beneath it into life everlasting. You see, what God has done in Jesus is he's written himself into our story so that the natural ending that we would have seen play out falls on him so that we can be written into his story so that the conclusion of Jesus' choices and life and love, that that conclusion gets to be the one that actually determines what happens in the end. And we get to be part of that because of him. He took the world that we made and let it land on him so that we get to be part of the world he makes and live forever. And as we experience suffering here and now, we're experiencing it in and with him. And it becomes the situation in our lives where we get to become more like Jesus, where we get to live toward our failing bodies, toward people who are hurtful, in a world that's systemically out of whack and doing horrible things, in a world where 
violence happens and scary things happen, a world where the phone will always possibly ring tomorrow or in an hour and it will be somebody bringing news that is the thing you fear the most. We live there all the time. But that's not where we live forever. Not because we're going to figure out how to escape it, but because God raises the dead. Our hope is a resurrection hope. And this is what we actually get to begin to experience in the here and now in our blessed suffering. Paul speaks of the wrath of God in this passage, which is a a hard word and a hard concept for us. We don't like that word. I don't like that word. It's just not a fun one for us. But I think it's also one that's very easy to misunderstand. What is the wrath of God? Well, as we've already said, the story that God is telling about the world, that God is making to come true about the world is one in which everything that threatens the fullness of life is removed, right? A world in which every relationship is rightly ordered in love, a world in which every body is healthy and vibrant and strong and lives forever, a world in which every relationship is made whole and every square inch of earth is made fruitful. And the wrath of God is the removal of all the things that threaten to choke that out. And the reality is there's plenty in each and every one of us that is opposed to that mission. I'm selfish, you're selfish. I can be greedy, you can be greedy. I can let my tongue let loose and unleash fire upon you. You can do the same with me. There's plenty about us that's opposed to that endeavor of God. As we look around in the world, there are plenty of things, right? Within us, without us, there are structures, there are tools, there are all kinds of things that oppose this mission of God to bring life and peace on the earth. And simply God's wrath, we might see as like this ultimate treatment that gets rid of all of that stuff so that there's no more threat to the goodness ever again. And what's so amazing is that what we might expect is this wrath to be some like furious fire that just like consumes us all or whatever, or wipes out the world. What we see in Jesus is that it is actually this moment that falls upon him and that when the fire on the, on the other side of Jesus, when the fire comes, it's not a destructive fire, but it's the fire of the spirit who enlivens. It's the fire of Pentecost that we then carry forth into the world that we commemorate in this dousing with water in baptism and live as those made alive in this fire of God, being purified by the very spirit of God who is at work and living out into the world as peacemakers, as reconcilers, as those who carry forth this love of God in Christ who's making all things new. That the message that we come with isn't fire and brimstone, but it's love and baptismal waters and a God who raises the dead and who brings forth life and goodness and peace. We get to be part of that because when we were still sinners, Christ died for us because God loved the ungodly and that in our suffering, we come to know the blessing of the God who attaches himself to us, even in the midst of it, that we might be attached to him in his resurrection life. That's incredible. 
And we should let that land this morning, this week, as we go from here, recognizing the beauty and the power that our hope is resurrection hope. And there's not any form of suffering you can endure where that hope can't go all the way to the bottom of your experience, where that savior can't go with you all the way to rock bottom of your darkest night of the soul. And it is often in that darkest night that that hopeful light shines brightest. Blessed are those who suffer. I'm gonna close by reading the prayer from Kate Bowler's resource. If you would join me, let us pray. God, our bodies remember the sleepless nights and cold sweats and unrelenting stress. Show us how to process all that we suffer. How frail is humanity, how short is life, how full of trouble, said Job. Blessed are we when we decide to make room for all of it. The fear and the gratitude, the complexity and the suffering. Blessed are we who pour out to you the whole of it, unedited, all the terrible truths and fears and what ifs. The gratitude for those beautiful hearts in action who came willingly into the strange and awkward space that is my need. Blessed are we, learning as humans together that pain is inevitable. Nurses are wonderful. Hospitals are loud. People are brave. And we grow and we hurt and we heal. And then we will do it all over again because this beautiful paradox is what it means to be human. Amen.